Senate uncertainty and more Trump legal problems. The people have spoken. The 2022 midterms finally come to a close. The Democrats winning the Georgia runoff race and an outright majority in the Senate. Today's announcement is a reflection of my values and I think the values of most Arizonans. But Senator Kirsten Sinema announces she has left the Democratic Party and registered as an independent. It seems to me would have a very hard time being sworn in uh, as president of the United States. And top Republicans criticize former President Donald Trump for calling for the termination of the Constitution. Plus, she's safe. She's on a plane, she's on her way home. WNBA star Brittany Griner is released from Russian detention. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. It was another busy and complicated week of politics. On Tuesday, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock beat his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker, in Georgia's Senate runoff election. Here's what Warnock said during his victory speech where he thanked his mother. She grew up in the 1950s in Waycross, Georgia, picking somebody else's cotton and somebody else's tobacco. But tonight, she helped pick her youngest son to be a United States senator. Now, Warnock's win was also supposed to mean Senate Democrats would have a 51 to 49 majority. But today, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona announced that she has left the Democratic Party and registered as an independent. Now, Sinema is known to be close to many Senate Republicans, but she says she does not plan a caucus with the GOP. Now, meanwhile, on Tuesday, President Biden announced his administration had successfully negotiated the release of star basketball player Brittany Griner from Russian detention. She was, part of a, she was part of a prisoner swap agreement for a Russian arms dealer. Now, joining me tonight to discuss this and more, Maya King, politics reporter for The New York Times. And joining me here in studio, Laura Barone Lopez, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico, and Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for The Washington Post. Mariana, you know I'm going to start with you because there's so much going on on your beat. It was a roller coaster week for Democrats. What more do we know about where this leaves Democrats in terms of, of course, Warnock winning, but Cinema saying that she's now going to leave the party? And what's behind, you think, Cinema's decision? What's driving her? Yeah, I mean, Warnock's win was significant for Democrats. It finally broke that 50 50 stalemate that we've experienced the last two years. And Really, what it meant was, okay, finally, there's 51. What does that mean? Committees can now subpoena whoever they want. They don't need to talk to Republicans to come to an agreement on that front. You will physically see more Democrats sitting on those committees to move things faster, to approve judicial nominations that Biden might send forth, also other administration officials that may need to be nominated. So it's a little bit more procedural, but Democrats are really feeling good. This was a big victory. All of these incumbents winning for the first time in, I think, almost 100 years is something we haven't seen for a long time. And then you get this news about cinema. It's not going to change that 51-50 dynamic. I think there, there were some Democrats that were very much fretting about that. She herself has not said she's going to caucus with the Democrats. However, she says, you know, I want to stay on my committees. And that is a decision made by Democratic leadership. Um, Schumer saying, you know, she does have an independent streak. 
this is part of her nature and, you know, we'll continue to keep working with her. But Republicans also seeing this as a moment where maybe they will be able to have, you know, at least an ear into the Democratic caucus, be able to maybe continue working with her in a bipartisan manner, especially since the House is in Republican hands. So there's going to be influence there. Functionally speaking, cinema would not go to the Democratic caucus meetings, though, even prior to this. And so she's not, she's going to continue not going to those meetings that they used to hold. The White House, you know, was asked about this multiple times today, and they said that they were really confident that no matter what, the dynamics of that 51 49 majority are not going to change. They're confident that they can still work with cinema as a partner, and they stress that she was a part of a lot of the things that the president got passed in the last year, including the big infrastructure bill and many other priorities. And so uh, they didn't say if they were given a heads up or if they were aware of this coming, but they, they really defended her and said that she's voted with the president 93% of the time. And so they don't foresee that changing or their majority changing. Now, Mariana, I want to go back to you because it's my understanding that Democrats are looking forward to using their new subpoena power to do things like investigate corporate abuses. This was supposed to put an end to the power sharing agreement. Is, your, is it your understanding, especially for our viewers, that this is going to change the function of the way that things are going to happen? Or is the Senate sort of going to function the way that the Democrats had hoped it would? No, you're totally right. They are going to be looking at more of that and be able to investigate more thoroughly, actually get people to come forward and testify um, if n a new numerous amounts of committees want to be able to do that. And I think Senate Democrats in particular are looking at this as, well, again, the House is going to be in Republican control. Everything that House Democrats have been investigating while they've been in the majority, that's something that Senate Democrats can also take up. I don't think you're going to see them necessarily lean in as much as House Democrats have on investigating Trump um, and, and those kinds of things. But they can do that if they want to, and that's significant for them. And Maya, you covered this Georgia Senate race so closely. You broke a number of stories. Um, you also told our producers that you were sort of up close and personal with the Walker campaign in the last few days and sort of watched it collapse and, and saw all this. What's your biggest takeaway from this race as someone who covered it on the ground there in Georgia? Well, Georgia has really emerged as sort of a, a microcosm of so many of the trends that we're seeing in politics right now. Of course, the influence of moderate voters uh, the way that voters across the country sort of rejected Trump-aligned candidates. And, of course, that plays into this larger argument that I think has also been very uh, exemplary here in Georgia, which is this issue of candidate quality. I think a lot of Republicans saw Herschel Walker as a shoe-in for Republicans in a year that was very good for them here in the state because he's such a big name as a football star. But what they also had to realize is that he is a football star and not necessarily a politician who was extremely untested and had a lot of baggage in his background. Uh, in the final days of this race, I did spend a lot of time with the campaign, and you could just see uh, that they felt that the writing was on the wall. They made a number of key missteps, the biggest of those being uh, this issue of Saturday voting. Democrats in Warnock's campaign actually sued uh, to have their voters turn out and vote on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Republicans in Walker's campaign largely rejected that, and they saw how in these deeply Democratic areas of the state, there was explosive turnout, while in the areas that were largely Republican aligned, there just was a little bit of a dampening uh, in enthusiasm for Walker. And that, of course, came to pass with Warnock's close to three-point win finally on election night. But that sort of that trend really started to, to materialize, I think, in the weekend and days before this runoff election on Tuesday.
And Maya, I've, I've been hearing from some of my sources that um, cinema's, Senator Cinema's decision, it really makes Warnock's um, win even more consequential than what Democrats thought it was. What's your sense there on the ground um, about how Cinema's sort of her decision um, changes the outlook of Democrats and sort of what they're thinking about this decision that she's making here? I think if you're a Georgia Democrat, you're really thankful for the $50 million that you spent to get Raphael Warnock elected. I mean, this is a really consequential and sort of immediate consequence uh, now of, of Cinema's decision. But beyond that, you know, I spent a lot of time with Senator Warnock, too, and talked with him at length about, you know, what he wanted to accomplish in this next uh, Congress if he was elected. And he prioritized voting rights, continuing to lower health care costs, continuing to create jobs, not just in Georgia, but really across the Sun Belt here in the Deep South. And so I really wonder now what uh, cinema's now becoming independent could mean for uh, Warnock's legislative agenda. All the things that I've named, you know, they really require pretty heavy majorities in Congress, and it's going to require uh, senators like Cinema to sort of get on board with these policies. It's very unclear if that would happen, though. And Josh, uh, Trump endorsed six Senate Republican candidates. Only one of them won. Um, I wonder what you make of the sort of the benefit possibly for the Republicans with sticking with Trump, as well as sort of the challenge that come with that, given the fact that we heard the, the former president talk about suspending the Constitution. Um, we've heard the, the fact that he wasn't even invited this time around to go campaign for Walker. Yeah, I think, Amish, that this issue of candidate quality is more than an abstract issue. It's tied to Trump. I mean, he's the one that backed these candidates, that backed Herschel Walker, that backed Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania and said these were the, the guys to go with. These were the ones who could get it across the finish line. And in those two cases, they couldn't. Now, Trump's people will say a lot of the people he endorsed did manage to get elected, but that were, was mostly House candidates that were in safe Republican districts where just about any Republican could have been elected. So I do think that what happened in Georgia is contributing to this sense that Trump is losing more and more traction in the Republican Party. And it's no longer sort of a, a whisper about questions about whether he's a good person to be leading the party going forward. You have people in the establishment that I think are, are more willing to speak up a little bit, even though they still remain fearful of a backlash from Trump voters. And Laura, what do we know about sort of whether or not Republicans influence Cinema's decision. We know that she's close with some Republicans. I also wonder what you're hearing about whether or not Republicans might think that they can lobby her more now that she's someone who's an independent. Well, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has long tried to lobby cinema, um, and we've also seen where he's tried to lobby Senator Joe Manchin, the other very moderate kind of uh, independent Democratic senator from West Virginia. But again, it, the White House and Democrats seem confident that cinema votes with them the majority of the time. And when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer came out today, he again was saying, look, the dynamics here aren't going to change. I think that Republicans are certainly going to try to bend cinema's ear where they can to see where they can get her to not go along with, uh, with Democratic priorities in this new Congress. But even if she does stick with Democrats in this new Congress, we're still talking about a House majority that is Republican and that is not going to pass the vast majority of these Democratic priorities at all. A really important point to think that whatever 
sort of President Biden wants, it's really going to stop for most cases in the House. Mm -hmm. um, Mariana, that brings me in some ways to 2024. Democrats were already facing an uphill battle. When you look at the Senate map of, of, of that sort of election, the coming election in two years, which makes my head spin a little bit, but here we are. Um, what does this make, Cinema's decision? What's the, what impact could it have on the 2024 map? Could Arizona be easier to pick up for Republicans? It, it could, and that is something that a lot of Democrats were just thinking about. Is, okay, we just put the 2022 midterms to bed, and today we have to start thinking about 2024. And, you know, a lot of people have been saying, a lot of Democrats in particular, thinking that she made that decision to become an independent for electoral reasons. They do think that if, you know, she knows that she cannot get elected as a Democrat. Um, Greg Stanton, who is a member, a Democratic member in, from Arizona, tweeted it. He said the quiet part out loud, basically saying, look, these are my poll numbers compared to hers if we were to hypothetically run for a Senate race. And she would lose by 40 points. Democrats just would not elect her. So this coming an independent may help her bring in some Republican votes, get those Democratic voters who do like that independent streak within her, and maybe repel uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego, who has not been quiet about potentially primarying her at some point. Um, hopefully, I, I, at least her orbit thinks this could be a signal to him that, you know what, you're going to make it way more difficult and make it easier potentially to elect a Republican to the Senate. And Maya, of course, all eyes were on Georgia when it, when it comes to sort of how you win a swing state. What's your reporting reveal on whether Georgia is really now a purple state? And could it be a blueprint for Democrats to, to try to win some of these swing states that are going to be critical? I do believe that Georgia is a purple state, but not without significant effort on the part of Democrats. So while Raphael Warnock was successful, and of course John Ossoff won in 2021, I mean, that came at a cost of several hundred million dollars and lots and lots of on-the-ground mobilization and organization. Georgia is a purple state for Democrats with a whole lot of work. Though I do think that Senator Warnock's win provides a blueprint for how swing states or swing state candidates uh, can campaign particularly to these very politically influential moderate voters in these suburban areas. I think that Warnock and his team were really savvy in realizing pretty early on, one, that Walker did have some soft spots with conservatives in the, uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, but two, going out really strong with a message that was, while par in part anti-Walker, very much pro-Warnock, uh, underlining a lot of his bipartisan accomplishments. But again, I mean, this still was an extremely expensive race that did go into a four-week runoff and required not only uh, mobilization by grassroots groups, but lots of money on the airwaves and even a lawsuit to try to get voters back out and rebuild this Democratic coalition that in many ways is still taking shape in Georgia as the demographics change. Really smart to, to sort of remind people how much it took to win Georgia. And Laura, really quickly before we turn to all of the legal challenges that, that Trump has had, but I want to just pause for a minute because Brittany Griner is home, right? She is someone that, that I know so many people around the country were praying for. She was in Russian detention. Um, President Biden seems very, very happy about that. Of course, there is some criticism because Paul Whelan, um, an American, he remains in, in Russian detention. What are you hearing from White House officials about all of this? So the White House was very careful as they announced that 
that Brittany Griner would be returning home to, to show that they were very aware of the optics and the unfortunate case that Whelan would not be returning home with her, which they said repeatedly, White House officials told reporters this week, that they were trying the best that they could for months to negotiate for Whelan to be joining Brittany Griner and to come home, but that ultimately the Russians were not willing to allow him to come home based on the, the slate of options that the, the U.S. was trying to offer them to get him home as well. Uh, you know, they said that they also, when they, when they ultimately decide to bring an American home and enter into a negotiation with another country that has taken an American hostage, that they are very aware of all the consequences that could come with that. And they said that despite all the consequences and all the different things that they thought uh, the ramifications, they said that they still felt as though the best option was to bring her home. Well, and, an and Paul Whelan's family uh, agreed with the White House on that. Well, an important story that we'll continue to follow. Um, thank you, Maya, for joining us and for sharing your great reporting from Georgia. Meanwhile, this has been a tough week for former President Donald Trump featuring a host of legal challenges. On Tuesday, Trump's real estate company was found guilty of tax fraud. On Wednesday, the Washington Post first revealed additional documents marked classified were recently found in a Florida storage facility used by Trump. And then that evening, Democrat Benny Thompson, chair of the January 6th committee, said the committee is considering sending the DOJ criminal referrals for Trump and others, it has investigated. Meanwhile, after Trump called for the U.S. Constitution to be suspended, many in the GOP roundly criticized him. I think anyone who serves in public office, uh, anyone who aspires to serve in public office or serve again in public office, should make it clear that they will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That, of course, was former Vice President Mike Pence. So, Josh, it's really your part of the show to, 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 to break all this down for us. What sticks with you when you think about all these different legal challenges? What's the biggest takeaway from this week? Well, uh, what I take away from it is that there's things going on around Trump that if they went on with any other president, just one part of this story would be enormous. But somehow amidst this maelstrom of legal problems that he's facing, things don't get as much uh, attention. I think the biggest threat he faces is the stream of former advisors and officials that are going in front of grand juries in Washington and down in Atlanta, uh, Fulton County grand jury down there, to testify about both the Mar-a-Lago a document issue here in Washington uh, at that grand jury, uh, as well as the broader question of efforts to undermine the uh, 2020 election. And, you know, each appearance doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's a big deal for a former White House counsel like Pat Cipollone to go in front of a federal grand jury and we presume testify against his former boss, although we don't know exactly what was said uh, behind closed doors. For someone like Stephen Miller, everybody knows what a close advisor Stephen Miller was, basically President Trump's right-hand man, also appearing before the federal grand jury in Washington. So when the president, the former president, sees things like that, uh, I think that's what he has to be most concerned about. Although, as you point out, there's a lot of other bad news he's gotten on the legal front, especially his company being convicted of criminal tax fraud in New York. Well, I want to ask you about that. What's the, the practical impact of that? What's the significance of that? Well, I think it could be um, significant in a, a couple of different ways. One is, you know, there are sometimes uh, covenants and so forth when they get these large loans for 100 or $150 million on their real estate properties uh, of sort of good behavior, uh, just like you might have a, a contract that says an individual has to uh, behave themselves, so does a company. And if they've been convicted of a felony, that could be uh, a problem for them. It's also possible that they could lose some contracts. And then remember, Tish James, the attorney general up there in New York, is pursuing this 
kind of effort to basically put the Trump organization into what amounts, I think, to a form of receivership. And for them to be convicted of criminal tax fraud certainly helps her effort to get that kind of oversight that could basically unravel the whole Trump business empire. Wow. Um, Mariana, there's all the stuff that, that Josh just broke down. We're so happy you're here, Josh. Um, and then there's, of course, the January 6th committee. What more do we know about the potential for criminal referrals and what that sort of reveals about where the committee's work is heading? Yeah, it's pretty significant because the chairman, Benny Thompson, months ago said, we're likely not going to be making criminal referrals. Um, at the time, other committee members said, well, there's still an opportunity to discuss that. The fact that they're coming out and saying that this is going to happen means that they could have found something during their investigation over the last couple of months. We don't know any more about, you know, who they're targeting, the number of criminal referrals that they will be making, but it is likely to happen soon because this committee is coming to an end. It's a Republican majority. McCarthy said he will disband this committee as it is, and the committee is preparing to release its final report, um, likely a couple days before Christmas. Um, and we all the, appreciate that. I'm I know, sure. we really do. <laughs> <laughs> we just can't turn off our brains just yet. Um, and they're likely possibly going to also do a public presentation yeah. at that point in time. But to your point about the Christmas holidays, it's unclear how many people will tune into that. And what are you hearing at the White House? From And what are they saying maybe behind closed doors about all these legal problems, especially for Trump, obviously, who is running to be president again? I mean, look, the White House has viewed their streak this past few months as being a very good streak, and they're very aware of the fact that the past month has not been very good for the former President Trump. I mean, publicly, they are very careful, as you know, to not comment on not just the January 6th investigation, uh, but also the wider investigations, really trying to show that they are letting uh, uh, A.G. Garland be totally independent, as well as the other investigations that are going on. You know, they speak out, and they did recently, the White House did this week, when they saw the former president say that the Constitution should be terminated. And we do know that President Biden, because of the fact that he's given speeches and privately has met with historians, views what happened on January 6th as a total attack on the Constitution and on the democratic election process. Yeah. And, and um, so they will continue to speak out against that, even if they don't engage in the investigations. And Josh, uh, tell me a little bit about how you're, what, you're, what your reporting says about the DOJ possibly receiving these criminal referrals and how they might integrate all of the information, all of the transcripts and other things that the January 6th um, committee hands them. Well, they've definitely said they want to get all that material that the House has developed and take a close look at it. I don't know whether they think there's going to be bombshells in there that lead directly to criminal charges or the possibility of criminal charges that prosecutors aren't looking at right now. But one thing you want to do if you're thinking about bringing a criminal case, especially against a former president of the United States, is you want to pressure test it. So you need to look at all the testimony that different people have given in different places and make sure there isn't something there that you're overlooking. I do think that this all fits together with a sense that this legal problem for Trump and his poten potential criminal exposure is really building to a head in the early months of next year when they brought in uh, Jack Smith to be the special counsel to oversee both the Mar-a-Lago probe and the election-related investigations. The one watchword we heard again and again from people at the Justice Department was they want to move 
quickly. There's not going to be delay. We're not replacing all the investigators and all the prosecutors. We're bringing in this one additional layer of what's supposed to be a form of independence within the department. But this isn't going to be like the Mueller investigation where we hire 18 prosecutors and bring in a whole new team of FBI agents. And I'm also curious, in the minute that we have left here, the DOJ also subpoenaed um, for Trump's communications and his campaign's communications election officials in three states. It's Arizona, Michigan, and Wisconsin. What's the significance of that with all this other stuff going on? Well, you know, and what was fascinating with that subpoena was they listed 19 different individuals. You had uh, people like Joe DeGeneva, Vicky Tensig, lawyers that had worked with the president, uh, people that worked on the president's campaign, and they're asking election officials in these states for all their communications, emails, any other records of interactions, because one of these grand juries that uh, the special counsel is overseeing is looking at, we think, whether there was a conspiracy of some sort to interfere with the election results and the certification of the election results uh, in 2020. And this, I think, shows the speed with which and the aggressiveness with which the investigators are moving so that they can be at some kind of a decision point maybe by, say, February or so of next year. And if there are going to be charges here, I think there is a sense at the Justice Department that it's better for that to happen sooner rather than later before we get into the really the throes of the 2024 presidential race. Yeah, well, definitely all the things that we're going to keep watching, definitely going to have you back, Josh, because we're going to keep breaking down all these legal challenges. So thank you, of course, to our panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And on tomorrow's PBS News Weekend, how rising prices are changing the ways many Americans celebrate the holidays. I'm Yamiche Alcindor. Good night from Washington.